Hmm. There's this elderly couple walking down the street, and they're very formally dressed. The guy's in a suit. I think it's because there's going to be graduation today. Yeah, congratulations if you're graduating today from the university. Well done, well done. Um, yeah, that should be fun. Actually, if you're in the city, I think you should take the opportunity to go to the city center to have a look at the graduates or the graduates. Sorry, graduates are people who are going to be graduating. But you should go to the city center. <laughs> and it's really, really cool. I think that's happening today. Although it looks like it might be raining. Oh, you poor guys. I, I hope it isn't. I hope you have a good day. And congratulations again on graduating from your degree. Uh, hello and welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Uh, as usual, I haven't planned this properly. <laughs> What's new, right? Um, but I just woke up, just gave a call to my dad. He's watching Blue Blood. I think this is Tom Selleck police show. Uh, but yeah, after that, uh, I said hello to him, wish him good morning, uh, had some coffee, and I'm going to look at the Bible. Um, I'm going to look at the book of Titus. And I'm not sure who recommended this, but I posted a question a few days ago about uh, suggestions for Bible passages, uh, especially to do with integrity in ministry, uh, consistency in ministry. And someone suggested that I look at the book of Titus. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to look at possibly the whole book. It's not very long. It's like two pages long. So I just found it. So this is Titus and it just goes uh, over the page and that's it. So it's not very long. Uh, but what I'm hoping to do is to try to get a talk out of this, uh, to look at what the Bible says about ministry, but especially uh, the topic of integrity. Integrity. Um, how would you define integrity? Uh, consistency, you know, that God says something and then we do or we live our lives in consistency with what God has said in his word. So I think that's what I'm looking out for, you know, that definition, but also that motivation to live lives that are consistent with the Bible, with God's word, with God's character, his holiness and stuff like that. So I'm looking to the book of Titus to do that. Thank you again to the person who suggested it. I'm sorry, I, I, I can't remember who it is, but thank you so much for the suggestion. Let's see if Titus has something helpful, something pertinent to say about how we can be consistent in our lives um, as Christians today. So let me pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word that speaks into our lives and help us to respond with our lives with a kind of integrity, with a kind of desire that wants to live out the gospel. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you've just joined me, I am looking at the book of Titus. I haven't looked at it yet. <laughs> so it's going to be my first impressions of the book of Titus. And again, I'm looking for um, uh, ideas, but hopefully a kind of concrete picture of integrity in the Christian life and Christian ministry that comes from God's word. So this is Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and a knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Okay, all right. So actually just the first verse, a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So you know this truth, you know this word, 
but it's meant to lead us in a certain direction, to live a life that displays this truth. And that life is described as that one word, godliness. So the gospel should lead us towards godliness. I think that's a good definition of consistency and integrity. Uh, God's word on one hand, godliness seen in our lives. Okay, so that's already verse one. That's already very good. Yeah. Verse two, a faith and knowledge. I need to go quicker. <laughs> this is going to be going on for hours. Okay, I'm just going to try to speed, up, speed on. Okay, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, promise before the beginning of time. So God is consistent. God has integrity because God does not lie about this promise that he's giving us, uh, this promise to give us eternal life. Verse three, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching and trusted to me by the command of God, our savior. So somehow the integrity of God is seen in the integrity of the preaching of his word. That, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, he brought it to light through his preaching of Jesus. I wonder how that works, that we can see God's integrity in his word. Um, I guess it's seen in the integrity of the speaker, maybe. Maybe that's what he's talking about that somehow our integrity is so important because it reflects the integrity of God's promises in his word. And I guess that already puts that kind of weight on the importance of integrity in ministry, especially integrity in uh, the lives of those who speak the gospel. Because it's not just their reputation that's at stake, but actually it's God's reputation that is seen in the preaching of his word. And so it's very, very important that those who preach it are consistent because they're meant to speak this consistent word of God. Can't see going around in circles, but, 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 but ah, it's good stuff. Good stuff so far. Okay. Verse four, uh, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the father in Christ Jesus, our savior. Verse five, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband. Okay, so it goes on to the description of a suitable elder. And uh, verse five talks about how Paul has sent uh, Titus, that's, that's the name of this book, that's the name of the person receiving this letter. Um, and his mission is to appoint leaders in the church. So it's very important that these leaders meet a certain requirement, a certain consistency that displays that uh, they have integrity. Okay, all right, so uh, where was I? Uh, verse six, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So consistency and integrity that's seen in his relationships, especially his relationship at home, his relationship with his wife, with his children, that he's able to manage his own household. Verse seven, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. So that word blameless again, not overbearing, not quick tempered, not given over to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. So it's almost a definition for this word blameless. 
No, 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 no. So to be blameless, that means people can't blame him. Said, aha, uh-huh, you are overbearing. No, no, he's not. He's not. You are violent. No, no, he's not. You, you are seeking dishonest gain. That means you can almost ward off all these accusations of impropriety, of being dishonest. Um, I wonder if it, it's also uh, kind of like a, it's a realistic picture as to the accusation that will come. <laughs> the people will accuse you of stuff. And that's why it's so important that you're able to refute these claims through just the obviousness of your life, that you're not doing this for the wrong reasons. Rather, verse 8, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So verse 9, I find it really interesting. He has a relationship with the word that affects his relationship with others. So he must hold on firmly to the trustworthy message. So he has a relationship to this. I mean, he really, another, oh yeah, another graduate. Yes, I I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a graduation today. This guy dressed very formally outside and also with his dad. That's so sweet. Yeah. But yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> Back to verse 9 in Titus 1. So he really, really holds on to this message because so then he can encourage others to do the same. He can encourage others by sound doctrine and he can refute those who don't accept this word. So it's kind of saying that the source of his integrity is in God's word. And if you think about it, I think that's, that's something that's counterintuitive because the definition of integrity, at least in the world, that does not acknowledge God is that you want to be true to yourself. You want to be honest. You want to be authentic to who you really are. But what's the difference then uh, with a Christian who's trying to display the same integrity? Well, that for the Christian, the integrity is outside ourselves. It's actually in God's word. So we're trying to be consistent, not with who we are, because we are sinful, <laughs> we're broken, but we're consistent with God's word. So it's a standard, it's a pattern, it's a character, it's outside of us. And therefore, we want others to be consistent with this word as well. Those who uh, hold, it, hold to this sound doctrine, we encourage them. And those who don't, they're not opposing us. It says it's opposing this word, we refute them. So it takes us out of ourselves in terms of ministry. You know, ministry is not being the best, most honest, most likable, most lovable pastor in the room. No, ministry is about the word. And you yourself are being accountable to this word and you're calling others to be accountable to this word as well. It's always putting the focus back on God's word, on the truth. And it's calling others to place their lives, to measure their lives according to this standard, but also this grace to the salvation. Yeah, okay. <laughs> please, uh, please remember, this is my first impression. So it's not like super, super like um, polished or whatever. But I, I think there's something here. Actually, Titus is teaching us uh, in a very freeing way of what it means to have integrity in ministry. It's not about being the best you know, most suitable guy or most perfect person, but it's just being a Christian who's trying to live their lives according to the gospel.
Okay, verse 10, verse 10. Let's pick up the pace. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of this honest gain. So there are people who don't have integrity because they're teaching stuff for the sake of this honest gain. So it's not just that they're teaching the wrong things and they're destroying other people. That in itself is really, really bad, right? But then you can see the inconsistency in their lives that, that, is, that should give you a clue that their teaching is wrong. You know, they're doing it for money. They're doing it for a kind of dishonest gain. They're, they're getting something out of it. And that's why they're teaching this wrong teaching, you know, ruining households. You know, there's mere talkers and deceivers. Again, mere talkers, uh, that's a very interesting phase. They just say these things. They maybe don't do them. Yep, so again, that inconsistency. Verse 12, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So um, it's something that um, not just Paul is saying, but there's something obvious about it. You know, people know this about them, I guess. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupt. Let me just finish verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Okay. Okay, well, what, what, what's, what, what's this talking about? <laughs> um, so the command is verse 13, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. So you're scolding them, you're rebuking them, why? And this is, this is kind of interesting. I think it's really interesting because you're rebuking them not because they're being dishonest, which is enough, right? I mean, say, hey, you guys, you're doing ministry for the wrong reasons. No, you're rebuking them because they're not consistent with God's word. They're not sound in the faith. They're not teaching the truth. And that's why they have dishonest gain. That's why their consciences are corrupted. So, so the inconsistency, that's, that's a symptom. But actually the disease, the cancer is actually they don't believe the gospel. They're inconsistent with the gospel. Maybe they don't believe that Jesus really, really does forgive us of our sins. Or they don't believe that um, maybe ministry um, for all its hardships, for its humility is worth it. And therefore you need to get this gain. You need to get this attention in order to make all the sacrifices involved in ministry worthwhile doing. You need to use it as a platform. You need to use it as a means for just feeding yourself. And there's an, an inconsistency there with really, really believing that the gospel is the word of God. So verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny 
him. So there is, a, again, so to sum up chapter one, this is the whole of Titus chapter one. He talks about the leaders and those who teach false doctrine. The leaders are meant to leave their lives in consistency with God's word. And those who teach false doctrines, you can tell by their lives as well. So there's a consistency, there's an inconsistency, there is seen in those who live according to the truth, the elders, the leaders of the church. And this is the criteria for choosing elders in a church. You know, you want them to live lives that are transparent when it comes to the gospel. But there's also a warning towards those who do not teach this truth, that they're denying God, that there's an inconsistency when it comes to what they say and what they do. Yeah, so just speaking about leaders and how important it is that the leaders of the church, the teachers of God's word, live according to the gospel. So before it even comes to us, I think chapter two talks more broadly about the church having this integrity leaders are meant to reflect uh, consistency, I guess, when it comes to living out the gospel. Um, yeah, uh, you know, unlike uh, 1 Timothy chapter, um, chapter three, which has similar descriptions for uh, leaders, you know, for overseers. Um, there, uh, there in chapter three, verse two, there is that famous line, able to teach, you know, and it's important that you're able to teach the, the gospel here. It's almost saying you're able to live the gospel so that you can teach, you know, um, and it's, and, and it might, you might, you could even go as far as to say that someone who's able to teach but isn't living this gospel, shouldn't be teaching. Someone who's able to teach this gospel very, very well and maybe well-spoken and very gifted, but there is open to kind of reproach. You know, it's not blameless. Maybe, maybe there ought to be an integrity, a kind of consistency when it comes to what they're teaching, but also what they're living. Now, in case this is too hard, I mean, it's just worth noticing that the requirements aren't, isn't calling for perfection. He's just saying like, again, verse six, husband of one wife, children believe, not open to charge of being wild and disobedient. This is, um, I don't think it's that high a bar. I think it's just talking about people who are, you know, struggling every day, but also uh, applying every day what they are trying to teach to the church every day. Meaning, you know, they're trying to live a life that is, modeling God's love and God's leadership in their own household. Hence, you know, not overbearing, not quick tempered, not given over to drunkenness. It's saying, don't be in the negative. <laughs> it's not saying the most loving husband, the most amazing teacher, most amazing pastor, but you can't be domineering. You can't be someone who loses their temper very often. And again, it's much less a job requirement because it's much more just uh, consistency when it comes to being a Christian. Okay, all right, okay, let me carry on, let me carry on. Chapter two, chapter two. Uh, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in the faith, in love and in endurance. So Titus is meant to teach older men. 
Verse 3, likewise teach older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So teach older women. So older men, older women, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to teach them. <laughs> Verse 4, then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Now that's very interesting. So you teach older men, teach older women, and then when it comes to the younger women, you're not supposed to teach them. The older women are supposed to teach the younger women to be, you know, to be godly. Verse six, similarly encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing to say about us. So when it comes particularly to young men, Titus has this big brother command. You know, you're supposed to teach them, but he doesn't say teach, he says encourage them. You know, encourage young men to be self-controlled and you set them an example. So they're looking up to you as the big brother. And then when he talks about teaching, in your teaching show integrity, it's almost as saying that, you know, you're training them through your teaching. So there's a peculiarness to Titus' Titus's role when it comes to young men. He's supposed to teach older men, older women, but especially when it comes to young men, you must show integrity because they're watching you. They're looking up to you. And it shows the kind of influence you have as a pastor, especially if you're male, uh, as to what it means for younger people to follow in your footsteps when it comes to ministry. It's a very, very peculiar, very, very specific call to integrity when it comes to teaching young men. Verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So it's interesting that there are going to be slaves in this congregation. You know, I think of back home in Malaysia, you know, you have the families, you have the kids, and then you imagine like the domestic helpers. They're not in a separate room. No, they're in the same congregation. And Titus is teaching the same doctrine of God's gospel and calling for the same consistency uh, in living out the gospel to everyone. So they're kind of integrity when it comes to relationships with one another, that the church is coming together and sitting under the same word of God. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Uh, okay, this is a very big statement. So the grace of God has appeared and yet we're waiting for the glorious appearing. <laughs> so there's a past and there's a future. And what it shows that in between, we're meant to display this this reality that God has appeared and God's going to appear. 
And what's this reality? It's seen in people who are purifying themselves to do what is good. Um, how do you apply that? <laughs> that's tough, that's tough. Well, it's worth just noticing that Jesus here is called God. And sometimes, you know, people criticize us, you know, where do you find that Jesus is actually called God? Because in the gospel, he calls himself son of man. Uh, something is called son of God. But here in verse 13, uh, we wait for the appearing of our great God, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is called God. And I think that helps us then to see the tension between what has happened and what's going to happen. So first of all, it talks about the grace of God has appeared. And that's talking about Jesus. It's talking about his salvation on the cross. But it's almost talking about what God has given us. So God has given us this grace through Jesus Christ. And that enables then us then to live according to that grace. It's talking about something that God has done for us. But finally, it talks about God himself. So God will appear. Jesus himself will, will appear and he is our hope. Um, I'm really thinking aloud. I'm, I'm really stretching myself. How does this then help us to live lives that are consistent? I, I guess it means that it enables us. It makes it possible for us to live according to this grace. And it motivates us to live according to this hope, I guess, I think. Does that work? And that the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation. So we are saved and therefore we are saved in order to live out this good works. But at the same time, what motivates us to continue in this good works is this hope that we will be saved, that we will be redeemed at the end time. So there's a kind of tension between the already and not yet. Jesus has appeared. We have been saved. We are not, we are not living good lives in order to be saved. We've already been saved. And therefore we are saved in order to reflect the salvation in our lives. But at the same time, we will be saved. We are waiting for this hope when God will come and save us. Hence, great God and Savior. Yeah, I think. <laughs> Verse 15. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you or look down on you or think, hey, who is this guy to talk, talk about these things? And maybe the claim again that he's too young or his inconsistence, or these kind of teachings are, you know, you're calling to be pure and holy and then they poke holes at your own lives. This is, don't let this, uh, don't let anyone despise you because again, your, in your consistency or integrity is measured on something outside of you. It's not, you're not the whole embodiment of this holiness of this truth. You're pointing people to the true truth that is Jesus Christ. He will appear. Put your hope, your lives, your motivation is all in him. And I guessed, I guess this is one of the reasons why if you are a preacher, a Bible study leader, there is this imposter syndrome. You know, you're going to feel as if your lives are inconsistent, that you don't have integrity. Because this is just so huge. You know, we're meant to live lives that are purified, that are reflecting the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some people are going to point it out to you. Don't let that happen. At least don't let that discourage you. Don't let, that, don't let anyone despise you because again, you're pointing them to a reality that 
God calls us to live these lives. God calls us to live lives of integrity, their worth of respect that is sound in the faith. And therefore, as you do this, God is calling us to do this. As you preach this word, God is speaking this word into our lives. And so there's a kind of respect, a kind of response that is right that you're calling for them to live. You might feel hypocritical in you know, calling people to live holy lives, to live um, godly lives, not to live the way that the world lives. You might feel hypocritical that way because, you know, your life, when you look at your own life, oh man, you know, uh, I know that there are areas I need to work on. But hey, again, the one that's calling us to do this is not me. You know, it's not even my model of faith. It's God. You know, we know that God has appeared. He has saved us. And we know that God will appear in Jesus Christ. He will be the ones who judges our motivations and our very lives. Okay, all right. Chapter three. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do good, to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and to show humility towards all men. So it's a reminder to be humble, yes, but to be visibly humble. You're humbling yourselves before the government, humbling yourselves before the kings, and you're humbling yourselves before everyone. So you're subject to rulers, to authorities, you're obedient, you're a model citizen, in other words. You know, other people will rebel against the government, but it's an indication that they may be rebelling against God. That's not you. You've subjected yourselves to God and therefore you're subjecting yourselves to those whom God has put in authority over you. But also verse two, to slander no one, be peaceable, considerate, show humility towards all men. There is this constant um, awareness that, uh, you know, if possible, and you're, you're striving for this, you don't want to make enemies. You want to make friends. You're constantly seeking to lower yourself before everyone. That's, that's counterintuitive, especially in a city like Cambridge. You want to show off that you're better than everyone. No, you're trying to live at peace with them. You're trying to lower yourself. You're trying to humble yourself before everyone. And that shows, I think, uh, especially in our speech, to slander no one. There's something about the way in which we speak about other people, the stuff that we say about our friends, that shows whether we're really humble or not, whether we're really seeking peace or we're seeking to make enemies. So things that are seen in our lives, things that are heard in our words. Verse three, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So it's saying we used to do this. So maybe now you're this model citizen, you weren't like this at first. Maybe now you have friends, but at one, there was a time, don't you remember you, me? We used to go around trying to outcompete everyone. That picture of hating and being hated. I hate you, you hate me. I hate you more, you hate me even more. This kind of like this cycle of hatred, of competitiveness again, of trying to outdo one another. And says, does that sound familiar? And all of us came from that kind of frame of mind that I am God and you are not. Even God is not God. I am God. <laughs> um, verse four, but something changed. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior appeared, 
He saved us, not because of the righteous things we'd done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so everything changed when Jesus appeared, when Jesus saved us, when Jesus washed us through the Holy Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian picture of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus working in our lives to remove all that rebelliousness. Yeah, I think, again, that transformation of being that hard, rebellious, always trying to pick a fight kind of person to someone who's been washed and saved and renewed by the Holy Spirit and through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's meant to see how only God could have done this. I'll, I'll say that. So it doesn't say, but then you realize you were wrong, but then you try really, really hard to be humble. They're saying the only reason why you can remove this rebellious nature, rebellious heart, inside of you is because God washed you through the Holy Spirit. That God appeared and showed mercy to us and God changed us from the inside out and it's all God, it's all God. You know? And therefore, if you're able to live this life today, it's all God, it's all His grace, it's all Jesus. Um, where were we? Um, oh, verse seven, so that having been justified by His grace, <laughs> we might become heirs having the whole of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So again, verse eight, this is a trustworthy saying. You know, those who have trusted in God devote themselves to doing good. So those of you believe this, you trust in God, you devote yourselves to doing good. You trust in the gospel, there's a consistency in the way that you live your lives according to the gospel. You do good. You live lives that are humble, that display God's goodness. So again, integrity, consistency, authenticity, not to ourselves, but to the gospel. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn the divisive person once and then warn him a second time. But after that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And it's just, um, it, this is so practical. It's so practical. Someone is coming to pick a fight with you. What do you do? Pick a fight with you. Pick a fight about, you know, what you believe in, trying to poke holes in your lives. What do you do? Well, you warn him once, warn him twice, and then, yeah, that's it, that's it. And, um, uh, and I think, again, the idea is not, it, it's practical because if you don't do this, you will be drawn into this argument. And it's just foolish. It doesn't make, it doesn't help anyone. There are just some things where it's just not worth fighting for. I think that's what Paul is saying. You know, some of these so-called big issues that people bring up that the church needs to deal with, that we as Christians need to deal with, maybe they're not that big a deal because they're just controversies and genealogies. And now there are, there are real issues that we need to deal with. 
but it's saying maybe even that most of them are foolish. There are things that we need to focus on, especially when it comes to integrity to the gospel. Again, you know, that's a big, 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 big idea in, in this book. But most of everything outside of that, not important. <laughs> Don't even get involved in that. It'll just suck you in, you waste your energy, and it doesn't help you, it doesn't help that person. Just warn him once, once, twice, and don't bother. Don't deal with that anymore. I find that really, really helpful, very, very freeing. Because again, you know, integrity is not about authenticity or being open or being honest, you know, showing everything in your life. But it's about showing the gospel, showing that God is gracious to call us and enable us to live a life that is pure, that's about doing good, that's about living peaceably with one another. But it's again, all about the gospel, it's not about us. And someone who's arguing about all these controversies, they're essentially trying to make everything about themselves. So there is a difference, you know, um, and it's important to see that difference and the difference is the gospel. Okay, all right, uh, let's finish up. Verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenas, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Um, just focusing on verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing good. Um, and you would expect him to say, our people must learn to study the Bible. He doesn't say that. It says learn to devote yourselves to doing what is good. Or learn doctrine. No, learn to devote yourselves to doing good in order that you may provide for daily necessities, not live unproductive lives. There's a kind of productivity that's meant to be seen in the life of the church that flows from the gospel, yes, from Bible studies, from preaching, but actually um, out that then results in just doing good, just, just helping people, providing for practical daily needs. Uh, and I think that's a challenge, honestly, because here is the end, the summing up the last word from Paul that talks about integrity. Um, and he's made, we, we get it. The main point is that integrity is integrity to the gospel. You want to teach people to have integrity, teach them the gospel. But at the same time, if you look at your people's lives, you look at the church, and all they're doing is just this, like this, like this, like this in their notes, and they don't actually help other people. All they do is just have conferences whereby they look at all the technicalities of the word and it doesn't make a difference to you know, people who are starving, people who are suffering. And you find people have nothing better to do than to argue with one another. And it's kind of sad. Sometimes the people who are most serious of the gospel, they're just arguing and just picking fights. There's something sad about that. Paul says, these guys have too much time on their hands. Tell them to devote themselves to doing good. And I think it's a challenge for those of us who claim to be serious about the Bible, who spend a lot of time doing stuff like this, <laughs> podcasts and live casts and live streams about doing the Bible. There's just so much good to be done. There's so much of life that's meant to reflect the gospel. And maybe that's where 
the inconsistency in my life. If you want to work on something, work on living out the gospel. You already know it. You already teach it. You already believe in it. Devote yourselves to doing good. And I, I think it's no accident this is the last word. Now, speaking to people who know the gospel, who believe the gospel, live it out. You know, help others to see the goodness of the gospel. Okay, and so far, um, that's it, that's it, that's, that's it, that's it, that's the end of Titus, quite a short book. Um, I really, really appreciate how helpfully practical it is. Um, and yeah, I, I think uh, I might go with this this coming Saturday. I'm meant to give this talk on integrity. Um, it's at the Philip Project. And it's a very interesting lineup that we have this coming Saturday. We have a few people invited in to talk about their ministry. So uh, a couple of people from a local church, a couple of people who have been missionaries around the world. We're just going to come in, bring them in and interview them. And so the students are going to get to hear from them and ask them questions about what it means for them to do ministry. And at the end of the day, I'm going to give a talk. I think I'll look at Titus together and try to bring it back to the gospel. You know, we're meant to be consistent and have integrity that is shaped by the gospel. And therefore, as we go out, leaving this course, living the, uh, you know, hearing this talk, you know, we know it. We're meant to go out and just get busy living out the gospel. Yeah, sounds obvious, but I think also sounds very, very helpful, very, very convicting. Yeah. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the message of Titus that speaks into um, our lives today. Uh, we just need to devote ourselves to the gospel, devote ourselves to displaying the goodness of the gospel. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me. This has been the Daily Bible Reading Show, looking at the book of Titus. Take care and God bless. Bye. <music>